All right, everybody, feel free to go ahead and have a seat. Oh, uh, hey, Chris, you left your uh, drawing up here again. You could, you gotta stop doing that, man. Come on, this is the pulpit. All right. Was it? Yeah, almost. Man, well, hey, good morning, everyone. If this is your first time to Redeemer Church, my name is Michael Badger. I'm one of the elders here, and it is so good to see you all here this morning to just gather together and worship our God. What an amazing, amazing privilege that is. And, and I know I've said this before, and so I'm beating a drum that I've beaten to death. But there are so many places around this world who do not get this opportunity. Who, who don't get to come here freely and lift their voices to God without fear of reprimand or without fear of being thrown into jail. So let, let, us, let us just enjoy this time together and really see it for what it is. This is a time for us to come together and worship the God of the universe. How amazing is that? It's a wonderful thing. It's not even in my notes, but, you know. <laughs> but hey, guys, we finally made it. We finally made it. We're out of Mark 13. We did it. I know. We're out of the Olivet Discourse, and we are now beginning the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Now, before we begin, I do want to share with you all just kind of a snippet of church history. And there was a man who was born in the 18th century who is still to this day considered one of, or if not the, greatest theologian and philosopher ever produced by America. And he came about a century after the Puritans, but was kind of considered their, their successor in a lot of different ways. And his name is Jonathan Edwards. You guys heard of him. He's pretty popular up here in New England. But now, Edwards is actually probably most famous for his sermon titled, Sinners in the Hands of an angry God. It's a really feel-good sermon, just by the sound of the title of it. Yeah, but it, it talks about the wrath of God that all sinners deserve, but also, and people kind of focus on that part of the sermon, which is, which is an extremely important part of the sermon, but it also speaks to the incredible mercy that God displays to us in the redemption made available through His Son. So it, it sounds negative, but it's also a wonderful sermon. That's probably what he's most famous for. However, his most influential theological work was called A Treatise on Religious Affections. That was probably uh, one of his most important works. And in this book, Edwards talks about what he calls the This, this idea of religious affections comes from 1 Peter 1.8, which says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not know, uh, or you, even though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. 
So Edwards observed from this passage written by the Apostle Peter to Christians who are experiencing persecution that true faith inevitably gives rise to godly desires and emotions. Desires to, to love God. To love Jesus and to, to feel emotions that accompany that such as joy guided by godly desires and to Help us cling on to what is true. And I pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I encourage you to open them up to Mark chapter 14. And take a look at verse 1. It says, It was now two days before Passover, the feast and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. And so right away we see Mark shifting the scene from Jesus teaching his disciples about the destruction of the temple and his second coming on, on the, uh, the, the Mount of Olives. That, that scene has kind of gone now. He's shifting it over to the secret meeting between the chief priests and the scribes. And these chief priests and the scribes made up what is called the Sanhedrin, which was the highest Jewish council in the land. of Jesus. How can they, how they can kill Jesus? And yes, if you're wondering, they did have pinstripe suits during the first century. Don't look it up, just take my word for it. 
But notice, notice that they are trying to figure out how they can arrest and assassinate Jesus, but, but they want to do it quietly. Right? They, want to, they want to do it secretly, under the radar. And the reason why they want to do so quietly and cowardly, may I add, is because it was now Wednesday. It was right in the middle of Passover and right before the, the Passover meal and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Now, let me take just, just a second and pause here and explain these two celebrations. So, maybe And when he saw the blood, the angel of death would, would pass over. Sound familiar? It would pass over their homes. And their firstborn sons would be spared from this plague. And so after this tenth plague, the Pharaoh finally allowed the Israelites to go. And God instituted the Passover celebration as a remembrance of this exodus of God saving his people from Egypt. And now, as I said, Passover was actually a week-long celebration. But there was Now, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread only took place over a long out of Egypt, God told Moses that this could happen so suddenly, it could happen so quickly, that they were to not even put leaven sort of riot, some sort of big outbreak, and this whole thing could blow up in their faces. And they, it could be their heads on the chopping, chopping block instead of Jesus' heads. That's kind of what they were afraid of. And so that's why they wanted to do it secretly and undercover. And so this is how Mark begins to set the stage of chapter 14. This is... indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold 
for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And he scolded them. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So scene two begins with Jesus and his disciples in the town of Bethany, which is just two miles outside of Jerusalem, and it was essentially Jesus' home base while he was in Jerusalem, while he was doing his week-long ministry there. And we also see that he is with a man named Simon the leper, and, and most commentators believe that, that he was called Simon the leper because this was probably one of the lepers that Jesus actually healed. And you look at John chapter, chapter 12, and you will see the same account, but with just a little bit more detail. And we see that not only was he at Simon the leper's house, which we see here in Mark 14, but John 12 also lets us know that he is with Lazarus. You guys know Lazarus, right? The man that Jesus raised from the dead. And we also see that Lazarus' sister Mary was also in attendance as well. And so it's probably those...
verse 3. She takes that very costly ointment, breaks the flask open, and pours it over the head of Jesus. Her heart's affection, her heart's desire and love was enraptured by Jesus. And she couldn't help but publicly display her heart's affection for Jesus in the most meaningful way that she could think of without caring what was acceptable to the people around her. 
Now, I would argue that you would be hard-pressed to find within the pages of Scripture all 66 books a more lovely and beautiful picture of religious affection than what we see here. Her affections for Jesus were such that she was willing to pour out her future and her security onto Jesus. Do you see that? That's what she did. She gave everything that she had without holding back. That's why it was so beautiful. It wasn't the fact that the alabaster flask full of nard was worth 300 denarii. Religious affections firmly set on Jesus came to him because she realized that he, just, just him, just, just Jesus, just a relationship with Jesus is worth everything that she had in the world. She wanted to express that by worshiping in the most resplendent way that she knew how. Things in this world can pull the eyes of my heart away from the visage of Jesus. My heart begins to desire the things of this world. And I begin to give myself, my time, my resources, my attention, my love to those things. I give him my hand-me-down worship. That is not how Mary viewed Jesus. For Mary, Jesus was all she wanted. For Mary, Jesus was all she needed, all she desired to worship, and she gave Him the best of what she had. Now, backing up just a second. I don't know if you caught this or not, but not only did the disciples and those scolding Mary think that what she did was nonsense, 
but they also greatly insulted Jesus as well. Did you catch that? Did you see that? Verse 4. They said that since Mary didn't sell the ointment and give it to the poor, but instead dumped it out on the head of Jesus, therefore it was wasted. It was a waste to anoint Jesus with this precious and costly oil. Do you see the grave insult there? Do you see that? Now, this is actually what happens when we put out of order the two Then, Jesus gives the second greatest commandment, which was, you remember? Exactly. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's the second greatest commandment. Now, the problem of some of the disciples in this passage here is that they got those two switched. They got them out of order, of priority. They were thinking of the greatest commandment. They were thinking that the greatest commandment in this moment was the second, not the first. You see that? Those angry with Mary were angry because they were so caught up with the second most important commandment that they forgot the first most important commandment. You see, the disciples in this moment, save Judas, who we will talk about in a moment, were more interested in their service than their master. Do you see that here? They were more interested in their service than their master. And that is so often what we can sometimes do too, isn't it? And this can happen all the time in the church, myself included. We skip the first and go to the second thinking that the heart of Christianity devotion to me here and now. Her priorities are right. In verse 8, he says, for you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. Whenever you want. They're always going to be around. And Jesus is not saying that you should never give to the poor. Don't, don't misread that here. Don't, mis, don't misunderstand the heart of Jesus here. There are many instances all throughout the Gospels where Jesus teaches to care for the poor. It's not what He's saying here. But He is saying that no matter what economic system that you find yourself in, you will always have the poor around you. Always. There is no, this, there's no utopia where poor don't exist. But, He tells them, you will not always have 
me. And what he means by this is his physical presence. In just a couple days' time, he will be taken. He'll be beaten. And he'll be crucified. And then he will resurrect in glory and ascend to the right hand of the Father. And so what Jesus is saying is that you need to have perspective. You need to have perspective. The poor will always be around for you to care for, and you should care for them, but I am always to be your priority. And so, my dear brothers and sisters, do you see how important this is for us to understand as well? We cannot replace genuine love and devotion for Jesus with outward acts of charity. It doesn't work like that. Puritan Matthew Henry says it well when he says that no amount of charity to the poor will excuse you from particular acts of love and devotion to Jesus. Let me read that for you again. No amount of charity to the poor will excuse you from particular acts of love and devotion to Jesus. You understand what he's saying here? He means that good deeds cannot replace genuine faith and love for Christ Jesus. And this absolutely does not mean that we should not give and give generously and do good for the poor or to love our neighbors in some other outwardly fashion. We are to do that. Do not get me wrong. However, our acts of piety, our good deeds to our neighbors should be subservient and flow from our heart's affection for Jesus. If not, our righteous acts become either just another rung in the ladder that we think we can climb to get to God and earn our salvation, or those good deeds will simply be a cover for our narcissism as we try to just make ourselves feel good by the good deeds we do. And it is those kinds of good deeds, good deeds that do not flow out of an affection for Jesus that God calls in the book of Romans and Isaiah, filthy rags. The first greatest commandment flows into the second. Not the second, into the first. Good deeds do not earn your salvation and relationship with God. Repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ alone save you. Having your heart made new and having its loving affections turned toward Jesus brings salvation. And with that love for God flows the fruit of loving your neighbor. Don't get those two confused. Jesus then goes on in verse 8 saying, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Now my friends, I don't know about you, but I would love, love for Jesus to say the same thing about me. I'm not talking about anointing Jesus' body for burial. That ship, that ship has uh, kind of already sailed. I'm talking about the first part of verse 8. She has done what she could. She has done what she could. In showing devotion to Jesus, love for Jesus, she has done everything that she could for Him in this moment. Now this woman, Mary, is not sinless. She is not perfect. By any stretch of the imagination. She still is sinful. 
but as much as humanly possible, she has fulfilled the first greatest commandment. She has loved Jesus with everything that she has. And she has shown that devotion to Him by not holding anything back from Him. By even putting her security and future, the things that we want to cling on to the most, into His hands. And oh, oh I, just, I want Jesus to say the same thing about me. I long for Jesus to say the same thing about me. I want to do all I can in my loving devotion to Jesus, but so often I fall short of doing everything I can for my Lord and Savior. For the one who shed His blood, who gave His life so that my sins may be forgiven. And so if you, my brothers and sisters, were to look at your life now, this is a question that stings. Just be ready. But if you were to look at your lives right now, would you expect to hear those words from Jesus? Are there things that you feel God calling you to do out of devotion for Him? Whether that be giving more time to volunteering, taking a different job because the one that you're in right now doesn't allow you to serve Him in the way that you know that He is calling you to serve Him? Or are you, are you being beckoned to the mission field but are worried because you don't want to leave the security that you have here? Or maybe you're worried about what your fa- friends and, and family may think of you if you were to give up everything so that you can go someplace else to share the gospel. Are you longing with your heart to hear from Jesus that you are doing everything you can for Him? Do you want to hear that from Him? I do. I'm not saying that you should go home this afternoon. see this in every commentary on this passage, or at least most of them, but I don't know if Mary knew exactly the significance of what she was doing. that her finger was more on the pulse of Jesus' ministry than most. After all, in chapter 10 of Mark, she was called a good listener. And that might sound like a 
pat on the head compliment, but if you actually understand who she was listening to, being called a good listener is probably one of the best compliments you can have. And that can't be said for many of Jesus' disciples up to this point. Jesus then continues with the prophecy given in verse 9. He says, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be called in memory of her. I'm stealing this line, I'm sure, from many, many pastors who have preached on this passage before. But the fulfillment of this prophecy is evident in this sermon today, right? People are still talking about what she did for Jesus. Now, in verses 10 and 11, we come into an even more stark contrast with the beautiful religious affections of Mary. The harshness of the response of those scolding Mary underlines the remaining hardness in the hearts of those around her, and as Sinclair Ferguson says, perhaps also the poverty of their own devotion to the Lord. But none more so than Judas. Beginning in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Again, taking my thoughts from Sinclair Ferguson, it is significant that this particular event seemed to act as the catalyst to bring Judas and the chief priests together, of, of Judas seeing what Mary did for Jesus. The one thing it seemed that Judas was unable to tolerate was putting financial gain below devotion to Jesus. You couldn't stand it. You couldn't stand it. And if you didn't know, Judas was essentially the treasure of the twelve disciples. And John 12 tells us that he was the main antagonist against Mary, not because he actually cared for the poor. Don't get that, don't get that mistaken but because he was in charge of the money bag and he often helped himself to what was in it. Money was at the core of Judas's affections. So think about what he stood to gain if they, stole, or if they sold that ointment. And for Jesus to praise this woman for what she did? Well, that was the last straw for Judas. And so because it seemed like Jesus was no longer the vehicle to gain wealth and prosperity, he sneaks away and meets with the Jewish religious elites who are all too eager to accept his offer to betray his master. Now, I'm out of time. The sermon was a little probably long in the tooth. But I want to show you this graph that I came across in this commentary to quickly just, uh, I think we have it up here, to quickly just kind of show you the contrast of what we see here in this passage between Mary and Judas. Between a heart who has affections directed and focused and centered on Jesus and a heart that's affections are set on anything but. Mary, a woman with no real standing. Judas, a man who is one of the disciples. Mary, she gave what she could to Jesus. Judas took what he could get from Jesus. Mary, she blessed her Lord. 
Judas betrayed his Lord. Mary loved her Lord. Ju uh, Judas used her Lord, or his Lord. Mary did a beautiful thing. Judas did a terrible thing. Mary served him as her Savior. Judas sold him like he was a slave. Mary, notable forever for her devotion. Judas, notorious forever for his betrayal. Friends, I yearn, I long to be like Mary. Don't you? But so often when I look in the mirror, it is Judas looking back at me. Do you experience something similar? Let us pray for the Lord to make within us the heart of Mary. Right? To turn the affection of our hearts away from ourselves, away from the idols that have come to roost inside and turn our desires and longings and emotions to Himself. Nothing else. I want to ask you one more time, but as you leave here, ask yourself, who am I closer to? Who am I closer to? Mary or those scorning her? Where do the affections of my heart lie? Am I enraptured by Jesus or, or does some lower thing preoccupy my heart's desires? Now again, I know this is going long, but allow me to close by reading this hymn written by Isaac Watts in 1707. And this will be my closing prayer. And as I pray the words to this hymn, I, I ask that you pray to our Lord and Savior that these words become the longing of your own heart. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss. And I pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to His blood. See from His head, His hands, His feet, sorrow and love flowing in the death. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns deposed? That were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all.